The Guardian. 2020 was the year of the pandemic, and whilst we were shut inside in lockdown, scientists around the world headed to the lab to uncover viral genomes, look for antibodies, and develop vaccines. But alongside this, many scientists working in fields ranging from astronomy all the way to zoology quietly carried on their research too. And although the pandemic will unfortunately continue to hog headlines in 2021, here on the podcast we wanted to look ahead to see what else might be going on in the world of science. You're putting this thing that you've worked on for many, many years on the top of a big rocket that's going to shake it to pieces as it blasts out of the Earth's atmosphere. And I think that's going to be a bit scary. The climate issue is quite clear that everybody wants to hit a certain temperature by a certain time. In biodiversity, you're basically talking about all of nature. I'm Madeline Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Now, who better to get the inside track on what's coming up than our very own science editor and longtime podcast presenter, Ian Sample, who has kindly joined me on the line. Ian, there's no doubt that your schedule will still be full up with reading papers on COVID-19 in 2021. But what else is on the horizon this year? What should we be getting excited about? It's it's easy to forget sometimes with um, the pandemic raging that other science is going on and looking even just to the immediate months of of 2021 there's going to be some really fun stuff going on in space exploration notably around Mars I mean there's this thing that scientists still talk about around the sort of the curse of Mars and it made a lot of sense maybe 20 years ago when these missions really were hit and miss and I think with a lot of success that, that NASA's had particularly um, and, and the European Space Agency and others in, in recent years makes us think that going to Mars perhaps isn't quite the, um, the sort of hit and miss challenge that it was of, of, of past decades. But it is actually still horrifically tricky to do. We've had spacecraft in the past just keep barreling past. We've had others crash straight into the planet. It's a delicate thing to do, but um, we have a a number of countries trying that in February. So the first arrival is going to be the United Arab Emirates Hope mission on the 9th of February. And this is going to be a satellite craft orbiting Mars at a distance of 22 to 44,000 kilometres, tracking Martian weather cycles and the dust storms that can cause landers so many issues. And it's also going to be investigating how Mars has lost its atmosphere. Mars's atmosphere is now very thin, but according to geological evidence, it may have been significant enough in the past to have sustained a temperature that allowed for water on the surface. But hot on Hope's heels will be missions from the Chinese National Space Administration and NASA, Chang'e 1 and Mars Perseverance. Tell me about these. What are they looking for on Mars? On the current schedule, the Chinese Mars mission, Tianwen-1, is due to arrive in Mars orbit um, a day after the United Arab Emirates mission. Now, that Chinese orbiter is going to map the whole planet. It's going to look at the gravitational and electromagnetic fields, and it's going to spend a fair bit of time 
surveying the candidate landing site for the rover. And the rover is due to go down later in in the year. That rover is going to try and understand more about the Martian climate and the environment and look at the soil to try and understand the constituents of the Martian soil. It's also got a ground penetrating radar to look at the internal structure of the planet. And one thing it should be able to do is try and get a sense of any distribution of water, ice under the surface as well, if, if indeed there's any in the area where it lands. The the NASA Mars rover is really due to land in a different crater called Jezero Crater, which is north of the Martian equator. And the reason they picked that site is there's this old ancient river delta there, which suggests, as you'd imagine, that there's been water there in the past. And so it may be a good place to look for signs of past microbial life, if ever any arose on, on Mars. And it's also going to look at the atmosphere and whether there's any sort of viability in trying to extract oxygen from the a lot of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which could be used for breathing and such like in future human missions. And I think one more thing to mention about the Perseverance mission is um, it's going to take up a, a little helicopter, which will be, if they get the thing flying, the first powered flight that we've ever had on Mars. And obviously, the rover will be filming that. So if that happens, then that will be pretty wonderful and a nice distraction from from the rest of the uh, the rest of what's going on with the pandemic. <laughs> Another bit of escapism I'm rather looking forward to Ian is the double asteroid redirection test or DART mission which could not be more sci-fi if it tried. The plan is for NASA to quite literally crash a spacecraft into the smaller of a binary pair of asteroids Didymos and Dimorphos. And this is to test whether this seemingly crude method could in the future be used to deflect an asteroid that's on a collision course with Earth. But amazingly, there is another mission which is getting even more attention, and that's the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, in October. Ian, tell me why this is such a thrilling prospect for the science community. Well, The strange thing is that a telescope, Hubble, has become a household name. That telescope has been so productive and so useful for astronomers over decades that it's hard to think of a time before it almost. And, you know, it's been just an incredible workhorse. And what is really exciting with the James Webb Space Telescope is it's the successor to Hubble. So it's going to be bigger and better. It's going to be looking more in the infrared wavelengths. And if you think Hubble was looking mostly in sort of ultraviolet visible and just a little bit into infrared wavelengths, James Webb goes into much deeper into infrared wavelengths. And that gives you new possibilities of things to look at. And obviously things to look at that you wouldn't have been able to pick up with the Hubble Space Telescope. So we're really looking at a new window on the on the cosmos with James Webb. And to find out a little bit more on this mission, Ian, you got on the line with Professor Gillian Wright, the director of the UK Astronomy Technology Centre in Edinburgh and the principal investigator in Europe for the Mid-Infrared Instrument on the JWST mission. And the first thing you asked her was what science the telescope would be doing once it's up in space. 
what we would like to see is the first galaxies and stars that ever formed after the Big Bang. And the other really exciting area of science, I think, is the study of exoplanets. So when JWST was conceived, this was a very new field of science. And now, of course, we've discovered many more exoplanets. We know a lot more about them. So we'll be able to take the big, powerful JWST telescope and really target it at some detailed questions and understanding, building up our picture of how planets form around other stars in much more detail than we've ever been able to do before. Tell me how then that infrared technology makes a difference, how it will be um, so powerful when you come to to doing the kinds of science you want to do. And you've mentioned looking at um, galaxy formation and looking at exoplanets. One reason you need to look in the infrared is because the expansion of the universe means that the distant galaxies are all moving away from us. And that effect of them moving away from us reddens their light. So we call this redshift. And so you have to look at redder and redder wavelengths as you look at distant galaxies. So if, for example, you wanted to look at hydrogen lines that we use in nearby galaxies to study aspects of the types of stars that are forming, those hydrogen lines eventually become not things that you can look at in the optical, but they become things that you would detect in the infrared. And the further away the galaxy is, the more that becomes in the infrared. So that, that's one aspect of where looking at the universe in infrared means you can look at the same things, but much further away. But you can also see different things if you look in the infrared. So infrared wavelengths, for example, are much better at traveling through dust. And we know that stars and the planets around them are often formed in very dusty environments. And the dust is very good at absorbing optical light, but infrared light can transmit through the dust more easily. So again, if you look in the infrared, you can look at different things. You can see through some of the dust. You can study the newly forming stars and planets in different ways. And it's also very important for chemistry because in the infrared, we can look at molecules that are quite fundamental to the beginnings of chemistry in the atmospheres of planets. Methane, for example, you would detect methane by looking in the infrared, and you wouldn't be able to see it with an optical telescope like Hubble. So from a high level, I was going to ask you what that means for exoplanet research. Does that mean you can start potentially looking at the constituents of atmospheres? And then the question everybody will want to know is whether you can look for for biosignatures in atmospheres, signs of that there may be life there. Yes, definitely looking at the constituents of the atmospheres of exoplanets is, is science that JWST has very much been designed to be able to do. I think biosignatures are very difficult, but what you can do is you can look at the chemistry around very simple molecules that might be associated with biosignatures. So I think it's not quite the same thing as saying I've definitely found a biosignature, but I found the right sorts of chemistry. Now, this is all very complex science, but the development for this began all the way back in 1996 
Why has it taken so long to design and build this telescope? Well, first off, these are huge missions and large telescopes, and they take a lot of people a lot of time to achieve. But there have been setbacks, including a major redesign in 2005. And a few years ago, the telescope's sunshield ripped off during a test development. But as Gillian explained, scientists have spent a long time honing down what they need versus what's technically possible. And they also have this serious challenge of building and getting such a big telescope safely into space. Ian, I wondered when we'd get to size. I don't need to tell you this, I'm sure, but usually for better images of space, you don't just need different wavelengths, but you also need much bigger telescopes. And here on Earth, we've got these huge telescopes with vast mirrors that give apertures of tens or so metres. So how does the James Webb telescope compare? Well, yeah, I mean, it's all about capturing photons. And I asked Gillian this exact question. How big is this telescope? How big will it be when it's fully commissioned? The mirror is six and a half metres in diameter. So its light gathering power is very comparable to the biggest telescopes that we currently have in the optical on the ground. That is wider than the fairing of the biggest rocket launches available, which is why the mirror is built in segments and then it has to be folded to launch. But then, of course, after we have it in space we have to make sure all of those segments that have been folded up align correctly to make something that is effectively a single, smooth, super accurate mirror surface. But my instrument that will measure the light coming from the telescope and actually make the measurements that we use to do the science, the mid-infrared instrument, MIRI, is about a metre cube. So it's a metre by a metre by a metre, and it is packed full of optics and detectors to make the measurements. So it's going to be a little while before they'll be able to see whether all the instruments are actually working as they expect. And after what happened with the Hubble Space Telescope, where the mirror was discovered to be defective post-launch, Gillian must be pretty nervous about finally sending this all up into orbit. You know, I asked Gillian about this, and she did say that the scientists are acutely aware of the many, many things that could go wrong. Everything has to work precisely and together to get the observatory functioning. It's a huge task. But they've done what they can in terms of testing on the ground, so we just have to wait and see now. First, she has to get through the nail-biting experience of watching the launch in October, though. I think I'll be a bit terrified. All of the engineers assure me that, you know, they've all done their homework. I've seen all the testing that's been done. And so rationally, I shouldn't be worried. But I think emotionally, you're putting this thing that you've worked on for many, many years on the top of a big rocket that's going to shake it and shake it to pieces as it blasts out of the Earth's atmosphere. And I think that's going to be a bit scary, even even if rationally it, it kind of shouldn't be. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition, liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA, go SpaceX. Ian, alongside all these 
exciting space missions that we've talked about. What else is on your radar for 2021? One thing that's going to be interesting to watch this year and in the years ahead is going to be what happens with mRNA therapies. Now we've seen that mRNA vaccines appear to be effective in the whole COVID pandemic. Those vaccines were really born out of a lot of work around using mRNA as a therapy for cancer, where you're basically building a vaccine or a therapy bespoke for a particular patient so that when you inject this into them, your immune system attacks their cancer cells. So that's going to be a really interesting one to watch. I mean, money is going to pour into that area. That's definitely one to watch. I think also one thing I'll be keen to see is what happens with ongoing work to use genome editing to try and reduce or prevent um, diseases in, in people. And also whether there's any change in sort of legislation or even thinking around whether societies become comfortable with using genome editing in, in embryos, human embryos, is always on the horizon. And that's something that will get, get ever closer. It will certainly be interesting to see if attitudes do change towards genome editing, perhaps not in human embryos, but certainly towards food, because there will be more issues with food security and availability in the face of the effects of the climate crisis, which is another subject I think we'll be talking a lot about on the podcast this year. One of the first stories we reported on last year was the Australian wildfires. And of course, there's a clearer understanding now of the role of biodiversity and habitat destruction in the emergence of new diseases. So to find out what might be coming up environmentally this year, I called in on an expert. Hello, uh, this is Jonathan Watts. I'm Global Environment Editor. This is a totally packed year uh, for the environment, um, and that's largely because a lot of the things that should have happened last year have been pushed to this year. And so we've got you know, a, a backlog of stuff to catch up to on a very, very urgent series of issues related to the climate and biodiversity. And in addition to that, we have the added impetus that will come from a new presidency in the United States with Joe Biden taking over from Donald Trump. And of course, Donald Trump had promised to take the US out of the Paris Climate Agreement. So the, the change there will be very dramatic. And we also have the lingering effects of uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Over the past year, we've seen a massive slowdown due to lockdowns. And now, this year, we're going to see many more economic stimulus packages. And those economic stimulus packages will completely determine success or failure in terms of moving towards the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. If countries invest a lot now of their stimulus packages in green recovery, so in renewable energy, cleaner transport, and so on, there's a very good chance we could get back on track towards a relatively safe level of warming. If, on the other hand, countries just try to go back to the way things were before, um, the chances are this could actually, this whole experience could make things worse. So it's a real make or break year in so many ways. And one of the places where we'll be seeing countries setting their goals and perhaps getting themselves back on track, as well as the impact of Biden's 
presence and and hopefully leadership will be at COP26, the UN's conference on climate change. What do you expect to be seeing there? I think we will see progress, especially now that we do have a new leader in the White House and a, a leader who who actually believes in science, who recognises that the climate crisis is, as, as Biden put it, an existential threat. The US is the world's second biggest emitter after China. So the two countries account for almost 40 to 50% of global emissions. So when a country like the US steps up, it encourages lots of other countries to do the same. And so you start to create a virtuous circle rather than a, a vicious circle. So bearing in mind that this goal of limiting global warming to two degrees Celsius set at the 2015 Paris Agreement isn't enough, and that most countries haven't even stuck to it, what should we expect from COP26? What might be different this time around? You're absolutely right that Paris wasn't enough, and also that even those promises that were made are not being met yet by almost every country. And that as a result, the planet is on course for more than three degrees of warming by the end of the century, and possibly even four degrees. Both would be catastrophic. You know, even two degrees is extremely alarming, and a lot of very bad things happen. The only two countries, according to Climate Tracker, that are anywhere near 1.5 levels are the Gambia and I think it's Morocco. And then the rest of the countries are just different levels of insufficiency. The UK, Europe are not really on course for two degrees, even though they consider themselves leaders. The UK, for example, has just announced that it plans to open a new coal mine in Cumbria, which is utterly absurd if they're serious about reaching their own goal of being net zero by 2050. Um, And then you've got a a cluster of countries that are just far off course, dangerously far off course. And unfortunately, they include the two big emitters, China and, and the United States. In Asia, the focus is very much on reducing the use of coal, which is still widely used and is still expanding in some countries like Indonesia and Vietnam and India, big countries. Then uh, we'd we'll be looking to countries like Brazil. Can it slow down deforestation in, in the Amazon? That doesn't look very likely under President Bolsonaro, so not much cause for optimism there at the moment. And then in Europe, you're looking at things more like aviation and shipping um, and transport and agriculture. But the key is over the next 10, 11 months to put more pressure on countries to be more ambitious, to make them realise that it's in their best interest, that their economies can benefit, that their people can benefit, and that the costs of inaction are much, much greater than the costs of actually addressing this. It's been said for so many years, but that is becoming more and more evident as we see more and more extreme weather. And there you mentioned the Amazon, and that takes me to another issue that the planet is facing, which is the biodiversity crisis. It's something that has very many knock-on effects, including increasing the likelihood of future pandemics. And there is a UN biodiversity conference, which is taking place in China in May. I wondered if you could put it in a bit of context for us. Like 
the climate crisis with the two degrees limit for global warming, are there big biodiversity goals? And are we hitting any of our goals? This is the the other huge international conference that will take place this year, COP15. Confusingly, they're all called COPs. It just means Convention of Parties, uh, basically a meeting of everybody who's signed up to the Biodiversity Treaty. That ought to take place, as you said, in Kunming in May. Almost everyone I've spoken to who's involved in that said it's very unlikely that it will take place in May because of the pandemic um, and that it's likely to get bumped back a few months at least. But this is, again, incredibly important because the Biodiversity Convention is supposed to be a twin of the Climate Convention, but it has become something of a neglected child. This is very largely because the United States never signed up to this, but it's also because it's much more nebulous, in a sense, in terms of setting targets. While the climate issue is quite clear that everybody wants to hit a certain temperature by a certain time, in biodiversity, you're basically talking about all of nature. So microbes and worms and insects and and plants and fungus and all of these things that together make up the global life support system. It's much harder to just set one target that, that fits everything. Also, I think there's a lack of awareness of how important this is. Almost all of the scientists I speak to say the biodiversity crisis is at least as important as the climate crisis, and maybe more. If we don't have good soil, we cannot grow good food. If we don't have pollinators, we won't have the plants uh, that we need to grow food. Forests, we're not going to draw down enough carbon and produce enough oxygen, and so on. These things are absolutely essential to human life and to the economy. But we have totally failed so far. If you think the climate action has been slow, the biodiversity action has been almost non-existent. This year, the organizations involved have tried to set new goals, even more ambitious goals, 30%. Let's protect 30% of the world's land and seas, conservation areas or protection areas of some sort or another. At least as important as this goal of 30% is connecting this with the economy and with trade. A small group of countries, they tend to be developing countries with a lot of biodiversity that the governments don't want to protect because that will slow down their economies, they think. It will mean less logging, it will mean less mining. And chief among them, not surprisingly, is Brazil. Particularly now, under Bolsonaro, I can see trouble ahead. So very concerned uh, that it will be another washout, which is very bad news because, as I said, this, this should be treated as something that has the same importance as climate. John, thank you very much for talking to us on the podcast. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Ian, it sounds as if it's going to be a busy year for the Science Desk and on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it often is, isn't it? Um, I mean, it, it's been a crazy 12 months with COVID, obviously, and it's been crazy for everybody. But 
I'm hoping that other science starts uh, to get recognized again and starts to get some more space because um, it's all this fascinating stuff going on. And it's, uh, it would be a shame if the misery of the pandemic eclipses all of that. Well, I'm looking forward to delving into all kinds of things from the space missions we've talked about to potentially even gene editing. But for this week, that is it from us. So if you have any questions or comments you'd like to send in to us on the podcast or some ideas for science coming up that you want us to cover, you can email us on scienceweekly at theguardian.com. We'll be back next Tuesday. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.